You're listening to the Beaver Tales podcast, which features exclusive interviews with former Oregon State student-athletes. We talk about what they did at OSU, what the transition was like away from college athletics, and what they're passionate about now. Here's a little taste of what's coming up on this episode. That was the season that kind of rocked me. It was like, oh, dang, I need to figure this out. I remember the start. It was in Corpus Christi, Texas. Ended up on the boardwalk there in Corpus, listening to Eye of the Tiger for like three hours, running up and down the boardwalk, trying to mentally figure it out. Am I good enough to be here? You'll hear that whole story on this episode. Now, I use this platform to give free exposure to charities. Hear more about Kingdom Home, a great charity from another Oregon State baseball player at the end of this episode. This is the Beaver Tales podcast with Josh Wharton, who has covered Oregon State athletics since 2013. Well, I'm really excited for you to listen to this episode. My guest today is one of the greatest Oregon State pitchers of all time, Ben Wetzler. The Clackamas native had a remarkable career at OSU, going from a freshman year where he played a fair amount, had a 4.66 ERA. By the time his career ended, he broke the school record, a 0.78 ERA. So Ben and I talk about his mental transformation, why he did not like Pat Casey at first, and how that changed plus his work with Greg Warburton, a mental health counselor who I've interviewed, and he's worked with Oregon State baseball players over the years ever since 2006, how Ben was helped by Greg amongst other changes, plus his work with fellow former Oregon State baseball player, one of his teammates, Logan Ice. If you listened to Logan's episode recently on this podcast, he's now a certified trainer in GOTA. You can hear more about what that is both in Logan's episode, plus Ben will talk about it as well. It's sort of like a training method or a science behind how to move differently, prevent injuries, become more explosive, but uh, there's a lot more to it than that, and Ben will give you a piece of that puzzle. So take a listen to one of my favorite episodes on this podcast so far. Just six years removed from his Oregon State career in All-American, here is former Oregon State pitcher Ben Wetzler. You're staying active, even though baseball has its ups and downs and who's playing and who's not playing. But it seems like you're staying pretty busy, Ben. How how has the last month or two gone? Uh, the last month, month especially, has been crazy busy. Up by 6, usually get home around 11, pack my stuff for the next day, back at it, doing it again, and just rolling through. And it would be – I mean, it would be a lot easier if I wasn't trying to train and want to put – in as much effort as I am into that side, but I've kind of just decided I had a son 15 months ago and it's kind of like, okay, it's now or never. Otherwise I need to go put money in the bank and start saving up for him. So I'm kind of just throwing my chips all in right now. How have you seen that play out just in terms of how much you're enjoying putting all your chips in it? It's, it's probably feels, uh, you know, serious emotionally when you when you put your emphasis into something, a, a lot of your day and you know what you daydream about is taken up by that. So how how would you say you're handling that? I mean, I get I get to be around baseball 17, 18 hours a day, so it's it's a blast. I think I'd be wasting one of my biggest gifts, which is I I work really really well with kids. It's really easy for me to kind of take the training I do with Logan and that go to stuff and the other training I do in the facility and then the driveline stuff. And I'm not the smartest guy. Uh, I don't know. 
gram grammatically and this and that. I don't, I can't use the big scientific words <laughs> everybody uses in baseball. So it's really easy for me to dumb that down and teach it, find ways to teach little kids some of this stuff before they have to go and change their mechanics and stuff. So it's actually really fun. You may be the person, perfect, perfect person to talk to about Goda because Logan Ice can get real heavy into it and you can make it sound understandable for a layman like me. So I just did the episode. Hopefully people listening to this one will have listened to Logan's, but whether they have or haven't, what Logan's getting into with Goda and sort of physical training is a, a concept, but it, you know, there's a lot more to it. But what's kind of the first thing you learned about Goda and how Logan in particular has helped you? Well, I, for a few weeks, I had seen him start posting it all over Instagram, all over Twitter. And I reached out to him. I was like, dude, you're going to push people away with how like much you're pushing this on people. And he's like, you know what? You're, you might be perfect for this, but just kind of disregarded everything I had said about it. And he's got me a firm believer within three weeks. Like I've watched my I've always struggled velocity wise in bullpens and just trying to do max effort. Cause I was like, okay, if I'm going to get a job or go to a tryout, I'm going to have to be able to like mimic in game velocities on a turf mound on inside, not facing competitive hitters. And so I got into Goda, I got into DST and within three weeks, my velocity shot up and I was up to 95. I haven't been up to 95 maybe once or twice in my entire life. And I was throwing multiple pitches at that, at that speed. And a lot of it is from doing just a little bit of this go to stuff. I'm understanding how my body needs to move and it's remarkable. I'm 29 and I wake up every morning and I feel 17 again. Wow. What is it you think? Is it the training? What, what has kind of made that difference? Even just a little bit of go to what, what has made that difference? I think a lot of it I've gotten, I got so stuck in, I have to be as strong as possible. And I never got, I was so hard headed in that, that I never tried to be as explosive and move as well as I could. So I'd go try to lift as heavy as I could three to four times a week, throw heavy weighted balls and think, okay, being strong is going to help me throw hard. And it's, and Goda kind of moves it back to, I mean, the first, the way he, the human body is supposed to move. That hip joint is supposed to kind of be a ball and socket and move in multiple directions. But I'd wake up every morning feeling 29. My hips were stiff. I'd have to roll out for 20, 30 minutes, stretch, do all this mo mobility just to get moving again to go train. And within three weeks of doing go to, I don't, I wake up and I'm ready to go. Was your first impression of it kind of, uh, is this a little weird? Is this a real thing? Like, did you have that moment for a little bit? hundred percent. I mean, the first, the first little bit, but then it started making sense because the whole point of it is to work from the ground up. You start from the ankles, the feet, and you move up. And that's the same thing you've been hearing in pitching deliveries forever. You have to work from the ground up before you worry about what happens at release. Your lower body's got to work first. and so it actually it just made a ton of sense to me. And I told him I'd try it for a week and then I loved it. And I was like, okay, let's do this. And if part of what helps it not seem that weird is that Logan was doing it, your teammate and a guy who probably isn't going to get into something super weird and useless. Like he's going to do something helpful. So that probably helped a lot to get into it. And now 100%, here you are. And it also helped it new. I trained at new athlete for a couple off seasons when I was back home 
early on in my professional career. So I, I know Ryan Paul, I know those guys and I, I trust what they're doing. So it, it, it made it pretty easy. And I have, I'm, I'm mixing it in with an, I, DST is out of Houston, Correa, Bregman, and a couple of those guys have trained there and they partnered up with Arizona Christian out here. So I have a trainer out here that's absolutely incredible. He offered free minor league training until the end of the big league season. So we have a pro group down here and he's put his time effort into making sure our nutrition's dialed, our programs dialed and hasn't asked for a dime. So he's, it's been incredible. Wow. So it seems you've got a pretty um, legitimate hope to either make it here or you, you had mentioned, you know, Japan and Korea are always options, but what's your hope for and what the next like month or two will look like in terms of who you contact and who you're available for? What, what does that look like in the future? Honestly, I haven't, I haven't got that far. My goal right now is to get up to get up to 97 and wow. basically pick which organization I want to play for. Yeah. And I mean, personally, I would love to go overseas and go see those cultures and just see the different baseball. I've heard so many great things about how much those cultures love baseball. And I would love to do that maybe later on in my career. Ideally, I'd like to get back in affiliate ball, especially with just how many injuries are there are at the big league level. I think there's going to be a lot of jobs and it's going to be really interesting to see how many guys actually simulated seasons going into next spring training or did they sit and play video games and are going to come in unprepared? Did Were guys able to go simulate innings? Because starters that don't throw 100 innings and then get thrown into that, I mean, they're going to have to do expanded rosters or some, um, something for their top prospects. They can't throw 18, 19-year-olds that didn't throw it all this year into the fire. One of the things that is already pretty apparent in your career is having a lot of talent already being being a good pitcher, but then stepping it up even when you've already had some success, which you've experienced with DST and go to of stepping your game up. I think maybe you would say it in a somewhat similar way to the mental game. And I talked with Greg Warburton a couple of weeks ago, who's kind of a he was a counselor and then worked with Oregon State starting in 2006 with a baseball team with Dan Spencer, who was kind of his first contact, the pitching coach back in the time. He told me a story involving you. I'll set the scene, but I want you to kind of recount the story if you can remember it. This was after your freshman year. So you had, you had a pretty promising season, started a lot of games. Your ERA was decent. You, you kind of shake your okay, maybe it wasn't what it became for sure. Yeah. But it, it was decent. Uh, Greg Warburton led a session teaching mental training techniques, and you walked up to him after the session and had a conversation. Do you, do you remember that particular day in that conversation? I do not remember that particular conversation. Me and Greg talked a lot over my years there, but I knew that I needed – something after that freshman year because I had never failed to that extent and I I still look back at that and that was that was the season that kind of rocked me it was like oh dang I need to figure this out I remember the start it was in Corpus Christi Texas I was like okay this podunk D1's not going to come out and do anything against me I just had a really great start I was riding high I was a freshman on the rotation and I go out there and I think I give up like eight or nine in the first two innings. And I'm like, okay. Ended up on the boardwalk there in Corpus, listening to Eye of the Tiger for like three hours, running up and down the boardwalk, trying to like 
mentally figure it out. Am I good enough to be here? Blah, blah, blah. So that's probably exactly when I approached Greg or maybe a few starts later, but it was up and down the rest of that year. Right. So you, you definitely have a high standard. And so Greg remembers you saying something along the lines of, I, I, I need to get out of my head. I need to think about some, think about something when I'm on the mound to, to calm my mind or to think about something more positive. So what was going on in your head? Like, what were you thinking about before, like during early in your freshman year? And then what did that change to? My mind, my freshman year was just, I'd, I'd ride the emotions. If I gave up a double, I'd be worrying about, I have to keep him from scoring. My ERA is already this. I can't let my ERA keep going higher. And I've, I actually slipped into that later on in my career with the Marlins too. And I had to go re go look through my journals before and be like, how did I get out of this? Where your mind is trying to sit there and do math on the mound. How many strikeouts do I need? How many this and that? And it's like, that's not how you compete. That's not how you succeed. And then, I mean, from there on out, my st- I could care less about stats. My sophomore through senior year, it was, I want to win that title. I want to win every game. And I want to embarrass every hitter that walks into the, up to the plate. What did Greg give you? Any, any tools, any methods that you worked through that helped that change? I mean, what, what actually gave you the, the juice to make that difference? A lot of it is just the imagery, going through meditation. I know it sounds corny and cheesy, but I mean, I still do it today. Like I did it on Wednesday before I hit 95 every morning. I say, I'm going to hit 95 in my next bullpen. And I start visualizing what the Rapsodo reads and that number. And it's like, okay, I'm getting closer to it. I've been getting closer to it. And I've, when I slip away from that stuff, those negative thoughts can slip in, slip in and replace it really easy. But if you just force yourself, force feed yourself, those positive thoughts, they tend to start happening. That was one of the things I talked with Tyler Malone about recently. Like he had that streak his sophomore year, five home runs in five games. And the phrase Greg Warburton uses is, and he, he worked with Tyler Malone a lot also, was soaking in the good stuff, like watching film of your good moments, not just watching film of all your, your strikeouts, the bad moments, all that. And it can positively reinforce what you're capable of rather than reminding yourself all the moments you've done something wrong and thinking about that, right? Oh, yeah. I have a playlist of that on my, on my phone. I used to watch starts of my best starts or just a few, few pitches of them. And I put together just a little playlist of me strutting around the mound, feeling myself a little bit. And it, it gives you those, that same juice, that same flow. I mean, you start to get the chills a little bit thinking about that, especially at, at Goss. I mean, the, some of those moments with those fans, I still get the chills just reminiscing about some of that stuff. I remember one of the things that Greg Warburton did that was most well-known because it went viral and O's. Oh, seven was that Jorge Reyes, his freshman year that you're already doing it right there, the tapping and that he was in the, in the dugout and people were wondering what, what, why is he tapping his face? What is that? Well, that was Greg Warburton's thing. That's the, the tapping of the face. It's like a, he calls it EFT. It's working circulation of energy through the body. Did he teach you that? Was that part of what you did or, or how much did you do that? Yeah, I tried that in college and I played around with it a lot. I've gotten more into the nasal breathing. My roommates read a lot on that and just basically duct taping my mouth shut and just breathing through my nose. And it just brings oxygen straight to the brain and allows you to think a little bit more clearly. 
And I try to do that while I'm doing that meditation in the morning for five to 10 minutes before I start my day. So I don't do the tapping anymore. I did like it. It was relaxing, but I found just first thing in the morning, it's just easier to lay there and breathe. A quick interruption on this episode to let you know about a special project I think you'll enjoy, the Beaver Tales documentaries, including exclusive audio interviews, narration, and retelling what made the 2018 Beaver baseball postseason so special. Every single game Oregon State would play in Omaha, two or three really weird things that maybe I'd never seen before would always happen. When he hit the home run, out of my coaching career, that's without a doubt the most exciting thing I've ever been a part of. This audio documentary series will come out in a few months. To subscribe, there's a link in this episode's description. Check out the website and put your email down there so you can be one of the first people to listen to the Beaver Tales documentary. All right, back to this episode. How would you say on a similar note, talking about how you change as a pitcher and I mean, completely different from freshman year or even middle of the freshman year to later on and then sophomore and junior year, how much did, did Pat Casey factor into your growth as a baseball player on and off the field? A lot. I mean, I was pretty soft my freshman year, and I honestly couldn't stand Casey. I couldn't stand Yeski my freshman year. I thought they were just out to get me, hated me, just this kind of soft mentality where it's like, no, they were challenging me because I, they knew how much better I could be. And I wish I would have known that my freshman year, but it didn't end up hurting me because it did kind of transform into those years after that they expect they just expected a lot more out of me and what I was capable of that I didn't realize at the time I was capable of because I always tell people I walked in there and I couldn't stand Casey I wanted to fight Yeski all the time my freshman year and by the end it's like I would go to war with both of those guys in my corner 10 times out of 10 I would didn't want to play for anybody else I'm curious both what it looked like when they were getting after you, not that they stopped getting after you, but when they got after you and it felt bad, and then how it changed, how you had that mindset switch. Kyle Novak has a somewhat similar story of how Pat Casey challenged him. He hated it, but ultimately saw Pat as challenging to be better. So I'll, I'll ask about when it changed and when you started to realize they're in your corner. But first, how did they get after you where it didn't feel good and you weren't so sure if you even liked them? I mean, fr freshman year, when Case start. When Case makes a beeline for the mound and it's not Yeski coming out for the pitching meeting, you know you messed up. And I remember my freshman year, I'd just cower down and kind of be like, oh, Case is mad at me. And then I'd get scared pitching on the mound. It's like, okay. And then for whatever reason, playing for the Corvallis Knights that summer and just closing and just coming in and just letting it, that got my kind of confidence back going into sophomore year. And at that point, I don't know if Case will admit it, but I think he likes when guys stand up to him. And so the next time he came out there, I wasn't so, so choice with my words. And we kind of, it brought out that fighter mentality, that kind of fight or flight mentality. And he knew when I'm at my best, I'm kind of that fighter. I'm that, that bull on the mound and it's, I can't be, the soft just trying to pinpoint. I have to pretend, even if I'm throwing 88, my 88 is the hardest 88 these hitters are going to see and kind of have that mentality behind it. 
Brett Casey has said of all the players, Mitch Cannon was oftentimes the one who would stand up to Case and, and step up in front of him. Not You didn't play with Mitch, obviously, but maybe you've seen that or, or even in yourself. Do you remember a time where you stood up to Case and maybe it was fire in that moment, it didn't feel good, but ultimately was a positive moment? Any stories like that? Oh, me and Case had plenty of those stories. I don't know if I should share them on a podcast or not, but we've had – I remember one at Stanford – and we don't need to get into the specifics of it, but it was basically a captain's meeting with me, Jake Rodriguez, I think Conforto, Danny Hayes, and some of the older guys. We had just kind of gone on a skid, and we got into it about something, and none, none of the players were saying anything at the time, and I kind of stood up and I go, you guys need to sit in the corner of the dugout. You coaches don't say a word, and just let us go play this weekend. And we went up and swept Stanford and I don't think it went the way Case would have liked but it I mean it turned us around because it ba- he's smart with that he would sometimes use our anger at him to fuel us on the field and it was pretty pretty smart psychology but it worked a lot of the times but yeah I was the one that ended up face to face with Case a few times. It's so funny when players get mad at a coach, but then sometimes to prove the coach wrong, they they work hard and play well and ultimately succeed. It works but, right in the coach's favor. Right. It's like <laughs> if you really hated the coach, the best thing to do would be to quit to hurt him. Not best in it, not really, because it's not the healthy thing. But it is funny how how Case could get you to not I don't know hate him or whatever it may be, but then <laughs> for his for his own benefit, kind of. Oh yeah, I mean it. It was such a stark difference, especially, I mean, freshman year, like I said, I couldn't stand him. Sophomore year, we go to LSU, and I remember there's five of us that after that regional, we walk into his office and beg him to come back. He was talking about retiring, and we're like, dude, we are too close, and we need you to get there. We can't get there without you, and we kind of just begged him to come back in the next year. If it weren't for Mississippi State and that short right field we probably would have had a ring on our finger but whatever the what ifs and then he ends up coaching five more years through 2018 yeah goes back three more times and wins another title do you think you would have been coaching in 2018 if you hadn't gone into the office and (laughs) I i think some of the reasons he he's such a family man he realized that he wanted to spend more time with with his kids and watch them grow up even more but what he didn't realize was how much the team and that um, program meant to them as well. So I think that's what kept him around. It was, it was partially us asking him and him just being, he's obsessed with winning. He's a competitor. He loves that program. He built it from nothing. I mean, there was chain link fences there when he built it. So it, I mean, that's, if that was my pride and joy, I'd have a tough time quitting too, especially he's not that old. If you, I mean, he's, what early 60s something like that yeah. <laughs> look feels like he's 40 based on yeah. his fire maybe 30 100%. but I mean he's gets jacked in the preseason he's shredded I mean I remember him breaking his arm falling off the roof setting up Christmas lights and he comes into weights with a broken arm and goes up to our trainer like what do I do trainer goes why don't you go to the hospital <laughs> You have a broken arm and you're driving to the weight room. Oh, man. I forget who told me this. A couple of people brought it up. Brett, I was talking with Andy Jenkins. 
Pat apparently is known for not eating at all during the season. Did you see that? Like, oh yeah, he would. He you would notice it just because he would his forearms especially are huge in the fall and the and early in the spring, and you start to notice it just in that was the dead giveaway for me that he was getting stressed out and like, but he's so competitive. He just, all he wants to do is win during the year. There it is pretty noticeable that, I mean, I don't know of anyone more intense really, at least a coach, at least in, in Oregon state who's just that crazy of losing weight of, of going crazy. Um, we've had so many, so many stories already. Do you, you only, you know, when you play, for four years, you may not see – that's not the whole scope of Pat Casey, but you hear stories from guys who played earlier or keep in touch afterwards. Do you think Pat Casey changed a lot as a coach over the years from the first time you met him to the last? And if so, how was the biggest way you think he changed? Not so much in my four years. Maybe our relationship did. But my high school coach, pitching coach, played for him at George Fox. So I've heard a lot of the stories when he because he was playing basketball at the time there. And I heard a lot of dirty stories of him playing basketball. He was a very, I mean, he played center at 6'1 or 6'2. He was very rough. I heard stories of him dropping pitchers off and making them run home after bad outings. I doubt he could do that now. <laughs> no, and he's completely changed and he's mellowed out a lot, but that competitive fire is still runs very, very deep in him. He does it in a mellow way. There's some kids in some situations that they're not going to respond the same way to getting a fire lit under their butt. Some guys, and he got really, really good at identifying those guys and just taking them aside and having just a conversation with them instead. And he, he had multiple ways of doing that. I'm, I'm telling you, he could sell anything to anybody. Just the way he can read people and read situations. And, cert, and like I said, I had certain teammates that he wasn't going to, go after the same way he would come after me or J-Rod or somebody that could handle that sort of motivation. Mm. Did you ever see him go soft on anybody? Like Maybe soft isn't the right word, but way different than you? I mean, he went pretty soft on me. <laughs> really? I got in a little bit of trouble. I mean, he. It, I think that was the most – the hardest conversation I've ever had and. Three or four days later, he sat me down and it was more like, hey, man, we need to make life changes. Not, I'm not going to just get pissed at you. Let's talk about life. How are we going to fix your life and get you going in the right direction? And I mean, some people would call that soft, but I think it's just another way of hitting the nail home. Because that's probably what you needed at the time. You probably didn't need him to get in your face. So the, the more no, beneficial thing. I mean, he did, he did right off the bat. And I think when we both cooled down, he could tell it was like really bugging me. And it was something that I couldn't just snap out of. Yeah. So it was, it was really good. It was actually really cool of him. Yeah. Uh, last thing on Pat, we've already shared like a dozen stories and how intense and crazy it is, but I, I feel like there's probably still a hundred stories we haven't talked about. So well, there's a million case stories. <laughs> All right. So how about, how about one more then? One more story that shows Pat Casey's intensity or who he is kind of characterizes another one that, that comes up, like you talk about with teammates a lot, but that, that we haven't talked about yet. You remember the Augie Garrido video that went all over of him 
screaming and yelling at his team on YouTube. Was this in a UC Irvine, Oregon State game? I mean, wait, is that, he was, he was uh, Cal Texas. State Fullerton. No, he was at Texas at the time. Saying, oh, okay. Basically saying this means more to me than you got like screaming at him. It was all over YouTube. Okay, okay. No, I haven't seen that. You haven't seen that one? Well, Case, I'm pretty sure said that speech word for word after we lost a series up in Seattle to UW like word for word. And I remember us all looking around each other, like laughing because we had just seen the Augie Garrido one and we're trying not to smile while he's going nuts on us, but we couldn't help it. And I think that he just lost it even more that day. I was pretty sure we were going to have to walk from Seattle to back down to Oregon state. That's hilarious. Um, we could we could talk all day about Pat Casey stories. Let let's end with a, a little bit more just on your career. You talk about coaching, and you've obviously got a passion still for pitching and improving and, and going a long way. And I hope you can play for many more years, wherever it may be. Do you think, since you've already done some coaching, is that something that you'll like to do whenever you're playing days in and get into, or, or a part of what you'll do spending your time afterwards? Yeah, I think it's part of what I'm being called to do. I've thought about it a lot just over this quarantine stuff. I could have gone and got an eight to five job to try to like really get by, but I, it wouldn't have allowed me to being able to coach. I can coach in the evenings, but I can also share my passion for this game with kids. And it's, it's been incredible. And I think over quarantine, a family moved down here from Vancouver and they didn't get a baseball season, so they wanted me to coach their kids almost five days a week to get them outside, get them moving. And that really drove it home. Like, okay, it's not just coaching, but I can have a, a big impact in some of these kids' lives. And so it, that part, I, it's 100% what I'm going to do when I'm done playing. What level? I don't know. Right now I'm coaching 10 to 12-year-olds, Call and then two college teams, and I love both ages. It's just it's way different. Kevin Kyes was one of the connections you had, former Oregon State player. But how have you found all these teams and the opportunities to coach? Well, I mean, there's a junior college league down here, but they're not allowed to be affiliated with the schools, so their co their coaches aren't allowed to coach them. And we've been setting up live BPs all over the state, trying not to get kicked off during quarantine, so guys can get innings in. Guys can get at bats in. I mean, we've had from our live BPs and some of my roommates, we've had four or five guys make it to the big leagues from these quarantine groups and training sites. So it's like build your connections and build your base. And I've met some of these junior college coaches and they've allowed me to kind of give my input on their kids and help some of their pitchers out and coach some of their teams. One last fun memory, and then I'll ask kind of a, a wrap-up, put-it-all-together question. Before we were recording, you mentioned the 2018 team and watching Oregon State win the national championship. Uh, and it, it meant a lot for you, even though you weren't on that team, but it was meaningful to you. Why, why was that so important to you? What was going on in your life at the time? They're going through that run right as the Marlins released me. So it was kind of the lowest of the low, didn't know where my career was going. We had just, from our group, the 2013 group, we had just put a bunch of Conforto and um, Matt Boyd and a couple other guys put a bunch of money into a pot, sent Max Gordon, Scott Schultz, and Jared Casper to Omaha to watch the Beavers. But the one rule was they had to record the entire weekend 
and send it in the group message. So it was, we're following along with that. I had just gotten released. So this is kind of distracting for me and kind of keeping my mind off what's going on and just allowing my, my body and my mind to breathe and relax. And the Beavs end up winning. I'm going crazy with some of my old teammates. The next day, the Dodgers call and I get a job. So it was like, it was kind of the perfect storm. Wow. Can, can you deduce what Kevin Abel is doing in game three yourself as a pitcher with your own mental transformation and growth? What did you see from Kevin Abel? I mean, he's just, he was just in another. Sometimes you hit that just next level where nothing doesn't matter what the hitters are doing. You're not coming out of it. And it's, I mean, it's very rare. Some guys get the, the groms of the world, get to hit it a little bit more. But in a moment like that, I mean, Abel was out of this world. That was so much fun to watch. And that's one of those things, like, it wouldn't have mattered if Casey Yeski tried to come get the ball from him. They would have left with a blackout. Abel wasn't coming out of the game. Like, some guys just have that in their blood. Heimlich had it. Abel had it. Boyd had it. Like, those guys just – there's another level you can go to. He was he was astounding in that one and just just crazy. Um, last thing to just kind of wrap it up, and since we've talked so much about your growth as as a especially as a baseball player and a little bit about coaching and as a person, but I'd like to know just kind of as far as your maturation process and growth as a person away from baseball since it's been about six years since you finished at Oregon State. What would you say is kind of the the biggest area you've grown in and what you're passionate about, what you believe to be important in your life, like qualities as a person that you are developing in yourself as a person outside of baseball, where do you kind of spend your time growing yourself and who you are? Well, it took me, I'll be honest. It took me a long time to kind of grow up from a lot of my college ways and college lifestyle. And I think I had a son 15 months ago and that was when it was like, switch was changed I'm not living for myself anymore it's kind of it it's instant almost it's like okay he's living he's breathing he's smiling now it's like now it's time you have to basically put everything you want to you want to do for yourself on hold and say I've got to provide a future for him especially in today's age where society's just lost its mind I think I mean a lot of that's due to a lack of parenting, a lack of communities raising their children. And we've just gotten to a point where we almost expect and demand things to be given to us instead of just kind of putting our head down and going and taking it and get working for it. And I, that, that transformed me because I didn't want my son to see that and me just try to be a free handout, this and that. And basically for him to look back and be like, okay, my dad worked his tail off, whether it goes my way or not, that's not really up to me, but I'm, I'm not going to have any regrets afterwards. Yeah. That's awesome. Tell you what, after your next off season, when you get signed by an affiliate club and have a great season, we'll do another podcast a year from now. Next off season, we'll talk more about fatherhood and all that and everything you're learning oh, yeah. about that. It'll be fun. Goto will be huge. My son will be huge. It'll be yes. a good year. 
<laughs> that sounds Hopefully great. we'll get through 2020 without aliens showing up. That's true. That's the first step. <laughs> So many good Pat Casey stories. I didn't even plan on spending that much time talking about Pat Casey, but you could tell he had plenty of stories to share, and I bet there were a hundred more we could have talked about had we had the time, and they just came up. So many he's probably forgotten about and hasn't talked about in a while. But a lot of fun talking with Ben Wetzler about a variety of things and hope to stay in touch with him and hear from him down the road as well. Hey, last thing is there's another Oregon State pitcher I like to talk about on this podcast. Maybe I'll get him on the podcast at some point. That's Matt Boyd. Not just who he is and how good of a pitcher he is in Major League Baseball, but the nonprofit that he works with. Him and his wife, Ashley, operate Kingdom Home, which is more or less a home or now multiple homes in Uganda where kids can stay and have resources. It's a lot more than just a place to stay and a roof over their head, although it is that also but also resources and teaching and a place where they stay for years oftentimes until they're ready to move on to the next level. So it's an amazing place that a former Oregon State pitcher himself has helped build a culture there that uh, definitely I would recommend being a part of. You can check out their website, a link in the description, donate if you want to, and uh, check out one amazing Oregon State story. These Oregon State pitchers are pretty cool, aren't they? A lot more guests to come on the Beaver Tales podcast my first women's soccer guest coming up soon. We'll go back to baseball as well. The baseball coach prior to Pat Casey, Jack Riley, joins me soon. Down the road, I'll also talk with Brett Casey, former Oregon State baseball player, son of Pat Casey, and that one will be fun too. Stay tuned to the Beaver Tales podcast. I've been your host, Josh Warden. Until next time, everybody, good night and go Beavs. <laughs>